Welcome to the Bold Speak Podcast. I'm Anthony Creedon. Today on the podcast, we're going to take a look at one of the major problems Jesus had with the way the church was being run by the religious leaders and how that same problem exists today. And on the inner out, I saw Avengers Endgame, and it's amazing. I'll talk about the most impressive part of the series and how similar it is to the Bible. No spoilers, I promise. All that headed your way as we give them the bold speak. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the Bold Speak podcast. Glad you can join me as we continue through this study of condition of the heart, taking a closer look at the Sermon on the Mount. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I have to warn you, today's lesson may flip your world upside down. All right, we're going to take a look at and address some of the critical matters of the Christian faith that I honestly think have been lost as the church slips further and further into what I call a new Phariseeism. What do I mean by that? Well, that's what we're going to take a look at and start to understand in this lesson and many lessons to follow. In fact, it's the primary thing that Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount, and I think it's absolutely critical for us as the church today. The critical thing that I hope you start to see here is that the challenge that Jesus is placing in front of the church and the challenge that we must face in today's church And we're going to see that immediately today as Jesus is going to turn his attention to how we understand the law. All right, having placed strong emphasis upon his fulfillment of the law in the face of sin in the last section, he's now going to clarify how the law actually operates, ultimately explaining how it's been largely misunderstood. In the immortal words of Indigo Montoya, I do not think it means what you think it means. All right, so we're going to take a real close look at that today and see how we can misunderstand the law and how it operates and how it works. All right, so if you have the study guide, go ahead and pull it out. We're going to be in lesson four, and that starts on page 16. If you haven't had a chance to pick up the study guide, I would encourage you to do so, and you can do that on our website, www.theboldspeak.com. There you can grab it. It's only $10, and by purchasing this, you're going to have an opportunity to take down some notes, see a little bit of additional information that's printed in that study guide, and have a chance to uh, reflect and recall certain things as we go along, as this entire Sermon on the Mount is really one large narrative, and it connects uh, really well to each uh, next thing and previous things that he's said. So, Uh, It's really great to have an opportunity to reflect and look back. Now, the section we're going to cover of the Bible today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 30. And I'm going to be reading that from the English Standard Version of the Bible. And if you don't have an ESV Bible, that is totally fine. Go ahead and grab whatever translation works for you and that you love the most. And if you don't have access to a Bible right now, fear not. I will be reading all of these to you from the English Standard Version so you can follow along as easily as possible. All right, so let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start with verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 
come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Question 1. What challenge is Jesus presenting to his audience regarding the law? Now, if you have the study guide in front of you, you're going to see there, I've provided you a little bit of a hint uh, in this little phrase, you've heard it said. All right. Uh, many times Jesus is going to repeat this as he goes through each point of the law here and addresses it further. He's going to say, look, you've heard that it was said, right, to those of old, you've heard that it was said this. Essentially, this is what Jesus is trying to tell them. This is what you've been told, all right? But I am telling you that it's something different. Okay, the, the challenge is whether or not the way that you've been taught the law by the church is actually the right way to understand it. Jesus is asking the people to evaluate the church's representation of God and his law. And I think he's challenging us to do the same. In other words, what Jesus is trying to explain is you've always heard the law put to you this way, and the law has always been used by the church to make you do this or think this or, or whatever. But I want you to really think about the purpose of the law and how the law operates and what God is actually trying to get at with the law. All right, And so the, the question really becomes, how is the law being used? Okay, for some, the law is, is really only surface level. It's used as a means by which to control people. We use it to manipulate people, threatening judgment for actions and telling people to do or to not do something. Here is when we think about the church being more known for what we're against than what we're for. All right, but what Jesus is explaining here is that the law is so much deeper than that. And here, the, the purpose and the point of the entire Sermon on the Mount and, and this really entire study starts to be seen. Jesus wants us to know that the law of God goes much, much deeper than the outward action. It has to actually do with the condition of the heart. Right, and the condition of the heart asks about what kind of sits behind those actions. Right? What are the motivations? How is it affecting your relationship with others? Right, what do your actions and the choices that you make say about where your heart is toward God and toward others? Notice what Jesus is getting into here in regard to murder. All right. When he's talking about murder here, he's saying, look, you've always been taught to think of murder as the actual violence against someone, right? The taking of a life. But he says, I tell you that it's something different. If you're even angry with your brother, you're liable to judgment, right? If you insult someone else, you're liable to go before the council. And if you call somebody a fool, you're liable to the hell of fire. And what Jesus is explaining here is he's saying, look, the, the emotions, the condition of your heart behind it, even the, the smallest things, the things that the Pharisees probably do regularly, but don't really think is a sin because it's not this direct violence against someone, those are equally sinful and equally harmful. Again, the law is deeper than we think. It's about where is the condition of your heart? What is your attitude towards your neighbor? How do you think about your neighbor? And this is the crux of, of what Jesus is going to be addressing with anger. He's going to address it with lust. He's going to address it with several things. Right? The Pharisees focused on the outward action, believing that that's all that was important. 
In the meantime, they sit here feeling self-righteous, saying, well, you know, I haven't murdered anyone, so I'm not as bad as that guy, or right? But if you've hated, Jesus says, if you've hated the ones that God has called you to love in the eyes of God, it is still damnable sin. Essentially, what Jesus is doing here is he's leveling the playing field, all right, from the religious elite who sort of look down on other people and they look at their sin and and they say, well, look at them, right? I, I may do the occasional bad thing, but I'm not as bad as them. Or looking at the sinner, the person who's committed a horrible sin and saying like, oh, gosh, I mean, they murdered, right? I mean, that's that's something significant. I don't, I don't know there's any coming back from that. Right? I mean, I've just, you know, I've lied on occasion, sure. I, you know, I've, I've, you know, been angry at somebody, sure. But that's, I mean, God, that's not as bad as that person. Jesus is saying, look, in the eyes of God, it's all the same. So stop thinking of other people from the perspective of, well, I'm better or worse than in the eyes of God. There is no better or worse than in the eyes of God. To God, all sin is sin, and all sin is condemnable, equally condemnable under the law. And so he's saying, look, for those of you who have murdered, that's absolutely wrong. But those of you who have been angry and carried hatred towards your brother, that is equally wrong. And we have to get to the, the, the deeper part of sin here, right? The outward action comes as a result of the inner situation, right? The inner status, the condition of your heart, right? And so let's get to the next question and develop this a little bit further. Now that Jesus has clarified the, the nature of sin in regard to anger and specifically with murder, what he's going to offer to us is the right solution. In other words, what should we do with this anger? How should we handle these things? And his suggestion uh, to us is to seek reconciliation. Right, to, to go before them and to seek to reconcile whatever the issue is so that we avoid anger. All right? and, and maybe the best place to see this or the most clear place to see how we should handle this is Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. All right? This is the part of scripture that deals directly with what we're called to do uh, in a situation of conflict. All right? So this is Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Question 2 asks, how does Jesus propose we handle matters of sin between us and others? Why? Jesus is proposing that we handle issues of sin between us, conflict between two people, with a personal encounter, 
In other words, approach them, speak with them, seek reconciliation. At all points throughout each of the steps that we're going to cover in question three, uh, through each of these steps, he's asking us to actively engage with those around us and seek to be community in order to resolve matters of conflict. All right. Each of these uh, issues that we encounter are meant to be handled with other people in a personal way because what you're really getting at there is the nature of the relationship, and that's honestly what you're trying to repair. You're trying to repair the relationship. All right, the wrongs that happen between two people, they, they happen. All right, uh, sin is a thing. We, we deal with it all the time. What needs to be fixed is not necessarily the sin itself, but the nature of the relationship that you have with other people. And that's why each of these steps really is a relational step uh, more than it is just a matter of dealing with the specific incident. All right, so let's go through and take a look at each of these. And this is, this is question three. What are Jesus's steps for conflict management? Step one, I feel like, is the, the obvious step here, right? Do you personally go one-to-one -to, -one to the other person, right? If you have an issue with someone or they have wronged you, the obvious first step is to deal with it personally with them, all right? And so once you've done that and, and kind of sought reconciliation, the question becomes, do they receive that uh, well? Do they receive that accountability well? Do they turn from their sin? Do you see repentance? Is there a restoration of the relationship? If there is, then excellent, right? Then it's, it's taken care of. It's handled. The relationship's been restored. Things are well. The person has repented and turned from their sin and, and turned back to God. And so now the relationship uh, between you and that person, the relationship between that person and God is restored and everything's wonderful. If they do not receive it well, right, if there's a problem there, if they say, well, I, I don't think that's a big deal, or I didn't do that, or there's no issue here, then you move on to step two, all right? So each of these steps are successive. If step one fails, go to step two. If steps one and two fail, then go to step three, all right? So it's successive. All right, so step two then is, all right, so the one-on-one the -on -one, uh, didn't work out. Uh, they didn't listen to you. They didn't hear that there was a problem. Right now you take someone else along with you and notice the purpose for this in verse 16. He says, if they do not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, the purpose of the other two people is not that they too can deal with the conflict and kind of gang up on them. The additional people are there as witnesses, evidence, you know, simply saying, you know what? they're right. I, I've seen this. I saw this happen. I, I know that this wrong occurred or this problem exists. And as a means by which to help them to realize this isn't just like one-on-one, -on -one, right? It's not like a he said, she said, well, we're you're just saying this. There's actual other people there who have seen this and they've witnessed it. And now they are providing the feedback to help them to kind of come to grips and come to terms with what actually happened. All right now, if the two or three witnesses, if a couple additional people doesn't work, then you move on to step three. And step three is between them and the church. All right, and here you bring the church into it as a means by which to validate the authority of the accountability. Right? In other words, you're saying, look, the, I have involved other people in the church now, the, the pastor, uh, they're involved now because this is a serious matter, and I really want you to come to repentance. I really want you to see the problem here. Right? There's a, a breakdown of the relationship between me and you. There's also a breakdown between the relationship between you and God, and, and higher authorities or religious authorities need to be involved here. Right? And so you take it to the church, and that's the larger body. 
Now, if all three of these steps fail, right? One-on-one, -on -one, you and a couple friends, and then the church. If all of these fail, then you move on to step four. Now, step four needs a little bit of clarification because I think step four is one of those areas that the, the church many times misunderstands. Um, and I've heard a lot of people say this. Uh, step four appears to be sort of casting them out of the community, right? And it says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And I think sometimes people hear that and they think, oh, let them be to me as one who's not a part of the church. All right. And so we like kick them out or excommunicate them or whatever. Um, that is not what Jesus is saying at all. Right. We have to remember that Jesus spent his entire ministry hanging out with Gentiles and tax collectors. All right. So what is he saying here? He's saying that we need to treat them as a non-believer. In other words, the way that we approach conflict management is to go to them and speak to them as if they're a non-believer, as if they have no context for what it means to be a part of the church. Uh, they have no idea how, how God works with his creation, the realities of the law. You approach it with a kind of gentleness and humility as if you were talking to someone who never, ever knew God. All right? But it doesn't mean you separate from it. It doesn't mean you disconnect with them. It just means you treat them a little bit differently. All right, And so the, the nature is that you continue to go after them. You continue to speak to them. You continue to call them to repentance. But you do it with a little bit of a different frame of mind. Now, I don't know if you've had to do this before. I have had to do this before, the way that you approach conflict. Eventually, it gets to a point where you just say, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that you understand what it means to be a believer in God. And, and maybe there's some real big issues going on here, a, a real issue with the condition of your heart that we need to address, right? Because that's what we're after. We're not after the actual outward action of the sin. I mean, there are repercussions and things for that. And when we talk about that, but what we're really after is the condition of their heart. Because the whole purpose of the gospel, the whole purpose of what we're doing here is to help them to reconcile that relationship between them and God and them and you and your community. All right. And so this is what Jesus is clarifying. How that connects with the idea of anger is that what it starts to help you to do is see that that person who sinned against you, they're not your enemy, all right? They're not someone you should be angry with and carry and harbor hatred and anger toward. That person is a person who needs love and forgiveness, and they need the, the blessings that come with, with being a part of the church and a part of a community that loves and cares for them. And so you look at that person who sinned against you not as an enemy, but as a fallen friend, right? Someone who needs your help, someone who needs you to, to get down in the mud with them and, and really help them figure out what's going on so they can find reconciliation and ultimately restoration by the gospel, all right? That's, that's the goal. That's always the goal, all right? And so this is all the, the things that Jesus is trying to get to as he's challenging the people and how it is that they understand anger and, and what it is and, and how it operates and the, the problem uh, that exists with harboring anger and hatred toward others. It keeps us from finding reconciliation and restoration in relationship. All right, let's move on to the next question. Question four asks, how do Jesus's words about conflict management further clarify his point in Matthew 5, 23 to 26? If you look at the steps of conflict management, as we've already said, each of them is really geared toward a restoration of relationships. 
and what it's getting at is really the, the, the condition of the heart. It's getting to the heart of the problem. And really is, I don't want to say bypassing the external sin, but, but sort of looking past it. Think of it like if you would go to the doctor, right? If you have a recurring issue that you're going to the doctor for, eventually, right, you get to a point where you go, well, maybe what's happening is, is symptomatic of a larger problem. At which point the doctor does several tests and, and looks deeper to find the root of the problem so they can treat the actual illness rather than its symptoms. What Jesus is challenging us to do with sin is to do the same. Right? See the sin, recognize the sin, you can treat the symptoms, but ultimately you have to look deeper. Right? What's sitting behind those sins so that you can actually address the real problems and move them into right relationship with God and other people. Right? And so this whole conflict management strategy that Jesus is addressing is really getting to a discussion of the condition of the heart. All right, and that's the same thing that we're going to address now with the questions of lust and sexuality as we take a look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Question 5. What similar challenge is Jesus making when it comes to sexual sins? You recall when we talked about murder in the previous section, we said that Jesus began with this phrase, You've heard that it was said. In other words, what he's communicating to the people there is that you've been taught that this particular sin looks a particular way. In this case, you've heard that adultery looks like this. You have a covenant and a contract of marriage. If you have sex with someone outside of that contract of marriage, you have committed adultery. It's isolated to the external act. In a very similar way as Jesus does with murder, he changes the way that people understand adultery. What Jesus explains here is that even looking at someone lustfully, even having the intent in your heart of, of having some sort of sexual relationship with someone that is improper or against the will of God, even the desire to do it is considered real condemnable sin. And so again, Jesus is looking at the condition of the heart. It's not just the act, but the intent that sits behind it. And in fact, it's the intent and the condition of the heart that's behind it that can lead to far greater problems when it comes to sin. The outward act is just a reflection of what's going on inside. Now, in order to understand the, the realities of sexual sins in particular, we need to break out into a few more places in Scripture so we can get some clarity on what Jesus is discussing, simply because of the fact that the next section that Jesus is going to uh, address, or the next thing he's going to address, is the nature of divorce, which is going to include some concepts and ideas about marriage. And so in order to get to that, we're going to take a look at uh, question 6 here, in particular, 1 Corinthians 6, 12-20. And once we get through that, we'll have a little bit better understanding of what marriage and sexual sin is really all about. So let's begin with this reading, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. All things are lawful for me, 
but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Question 6 asks, What is Jesus explaining to the church in Matthew 5, 29-30? Now, Matthew 5, 29 to 30, it's the part where Jesus seems to be taking a very radical approach to eliminating the, the problem of sexual lust and, and adultery by saying that you need to flee from it. And not just flee from it, it sounds like he's saying mutilate yourself to get away from it. All right, And so we have to understand the, the severity of what's going on here and, and why Jesus is speaking so harshly uh, against the dangers of sexual sin. 1 Corinthians 6 helps us here. What 1 Corinthians 6 explains to us is that sexual sins don't only have a consequence for the person that you sinned against, but there are consequences for your own body as well. Other sins have an effect on the person that you sinned against, right? You steal from somebody and that person is missing something, but you feel like you've gained something right? Uh, in a situation of violence, you may uh, beat the, the snot out of somebody and they're injured and they're hurt, but there's not typically a whole lot of harm to your body. If you've uh, done the murder, you're still alive. They're now dead. But sexual sins have consequences for both the person you sinned with and your own body, which means there's a certain kind of weight associated with sexual sins and uh, a really uh, kind of important thing that we need to recognize that's happening when we commit the sin of adultery, all right? And so because there's this significance tied to sexual sins, Jesus is saying you need to run from them, not walk, uh, not sort of toy around with it. Don't don't play with it, right? Don't shake the devil's hand and then say you're only kidding, right? Don't, don't test yourself with it, but flee from it because there are real dangers associated with what's going on here. Now, the significance of these dangers is really best understood within the context of a right understanding of what marriage is and what marriage is not. And that's what we're going to get to next week. All right, as we continue through the section, looking at Matthew 5, in, in particular, verses 31 to 32, but really finishing off this whole section uh, here of Matthew 5, uh, what we're going to see is that Jesus defines marriage in a very specific way and, and wants us to understand the true nature of marriage so that we understand some really critical and key points about how we treat marriage and, in particular, how we treat the sexual act. All right, so I hope you join me for that. And again, I'm, I'm really glad that you've been able to join me for this as we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of the Sermon on the Mount and really dive deeper into the meanings associated with the condition of the heart. And speaking of condition of the heart, 
I have a deep, deep love for superheroes and superhero films. I mean, they were a large part of my childhood, and for those of you that know me, I nearly made them my career. So you can imagine the, the inner nerd, the inner child in me, just losing its mind for the release of Avengers Endgame. I was psyched. But it wasn't just for this film alone. It was for the, the work and the careful storytelling that got us to this moment, and the similarities that that has with the construction of the Bible. And after seeing it, I'm even more in than I ever thought I could be. And that's the topic of this edition of The Inner Out. All right, young man, in or out? I am a total comic book nerd. I mean, since I was a kid, I was fascinated by the storylines and the characters, the battle between good and evil, and the depiction of people who struggled with identity and the responsibilities associated with their powers. And as a kid, I found myself completely immersed in the original story of the Infinity Gauntlet and these powerful Infinity Stones that allowed Thanos to wipe out half the population of the universe. So you can imagine the giddiness that welled up inside me when I first realized that the Marvel Cinematic Universe was building to this same climactic end. But the giddiness that I felt was not just with the end game, but with the storytelling that spanned more than a decade. Over the course of 12 years and countless films, Marvel has been working hard to develop and intermingle storylines that would allow you to be invested in the characters and the depths of their narrative. Through several films, we got to know each Avenger and, and what made them tick. We got to see the joy and the conflict both externally and internally as they struggled with what it meant to be an Avenger and the weight of such an incredible responsibility. And while each film had their share of visually stunning effects and action, they also were able to craft the storyline in such a way that each character got to develop a personality of their own. You had walked a journey with them. You'd gotten to know them. And that is what made Endgame so special. It was the conclusion of a story that many felt like they were a part of, like seeing a family member succeed after years of hard work. It's not your story, but a story you know all too well. As I decompressed the film with my girlfriend, being very careful to not say anything too loudly for fear of ruining it for others, or being caught by the Marvel police who seemed to be on high alert since the film's release, I realized a striking similarity with the Bible. Unfortunately, too many see the Bible as a series of isolated moments and books, a mishmash of history and tradition that includes some interesting characters and fascinating storylines, but no real cohesive narrative. Kinda like DC's attempt at the Justice League. Whoops. But like Marvel's work for Avengers Endgame, the Bible is a carefully told, cohesive narrative that ties everything together in one culminating moment of victory, one pivotal story that makes sense of it all. And better yet, the Bible's real. While Avengers can bring out the nerd in all of us, the Bible brings out the human in all of us. The retold history of imperfect men and women who struggled with what it meant to follow the true God and the responsibility of service to him. 
And in the final moment, when many thought all was lost, we found out that what others saw as a defeat, we actually held as a victory. What Avengers Endgame did was remind us all that it all had a point, a purpose. From the smallest character to the biggest hero, it all mattered. I pray that many would see the significance of that truth in the Bible, and that more would take the opportunity to really dig in and see how even the smallest of details has purpose and meaning, as we have the blessing to see God's giant narrative unfold. Because when it comes to the Bible, this is our narrative. We're not passive observers like with comic books or movies. This is our story. And some incredible people went through some incredible things to pass that history down to us so that we could establish an incredible history of faith for the next generations to come. So as for Avengers Endgame, I am definitely in. And as for the Bible, well, you can probably guess I'm really all in too. Are you? That's all for this episode of the Bold Speak Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. As always, make sure you connect with us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at forward slash The Bold Speak. Check out our website at www.theboldspeak.com and make sure you subscribe to this channel and all our other media channels to get the latest information, news, updates, and lessons as we release them. As always, folks, thanks for joining me. I'm Anthony Creedon, and that is The Bold Speak.